10, starting at verse 1. At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion in what was known as the Italian Regiment. He and all his family were devout and God-fearing. He gave generously to those in need and prayed to God regularly. One day at about three in the afternoon, he had a vision. He distinctly saw an angel of God who came to him and said, Cornelius. Cornelius stared at him in fear. What is it, Lord? he asked. The angel answered, your prayers and gifts to the poor have come up as a memorial offering before God. Now send men to Joppa to bring back a man named Simon, who is called Peter. He is staying with Simon the Tanner, whose house is by the sea. When the angel who spoke to him had gone, Cornelius called two of his servants and a devout soldier who was one of his attendants. He told them everything that had happened and sent them to Joppa. About noon the following day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up to the roof to pray. He became hungry and wanted something to eat. And while the meal was being prepared, he fell into a trance. He saw heaven opened and something like a large sheet being let down to earth by its four corners. It contained all kinds of four-footed animals as well as reptiles and birds. Then a voice told him, Get up, Peter, kill and eat. Surely not, Lord, replied Peter. I have never eaten anything impure or unclean. The voice spoke to him a second time. Do not call anything um, impure that God has made clean. This happened three times, and immediately the sheet was taken back to heaven. While Peter was wondering about the meaning of the vision, the men sent by Cornelius found out where Simon's house was and stopped at the gate. They called out, asking if Simon, who was known as Peter, was staying there. While Peter was still thinking about the vision, the spirit said to him, Simon, three men are looking for you, so get up and go downstairs. Do not hesitate to go with them, for I have sent them. Peter went down and said to the men, I'm the one you're looking for. Why have you come? The men replied, we have come from Cornelius, the centurion. He is a righteous and God-fearing man who is respected by all the Jewish people. A holy angel told him to ask you to come to his house so that he could hear what you have to say. Then Peter invited the men into the house to be his guests. The next day, Peter started out with them and some of the believers from Joppa went along. The following day, he arrived in Caesarea. Cornelius was expecting them and had called together his relatives and close friends. As Peter entered the house, Cornelius met him and fell at his feet in reverence. But Peter made him get up. Stand up, he said. I'm only a man myself. While talking with him, Peter went inside and found a large gathering of people. He said to them, you are well aware it is against our law for a Jew to associate with or visit a Gentile. But God has shown me that I, that I should not call anyone impure or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without raising any objection. May I ask why you sent for me? Cornelius answered, Three days ago, I was in my house praying at this hour, at three in the afternoon. Suddenly, a man in shining clothes stood before me and said, Cornelius, God has heard your prayer and remembered your gifts to the poor. Send to Joppa for Simon, who was called Peter. He is a guest in the home of Simon the Tanner, who lives by the sea. 
So I sent for you immediately, and it was good of you to come. Now we are all here in the presence of God to listen to everything the Lord has commanded you to tell us. Then Peter began to speak. I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism, but accepts from every nation the one who fears him and does what is right. You know the message God sent to the people of Israel, announcing the good news of peace through Jesus Christ, who is Lord of all. You know what has happened throughout the province of Judea, beginning in Galilee after the baptism that John preached, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and power, and how he went around doing good and healing all who were under the power of the devil, because God was with him. We are witnesses of everything that he did in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They killed him by hanging him on a cross, but God raised him from the dead on the third day and caused him to be seen. He was not seen by all people, but by witnesses whom God had already chosen, by us who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. He commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one whom God appointed as judge of the living and the dead. All the prophets testify about him, that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. While Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit came on all who heard the message. The circumcised believers who had come with Peter were astonished that the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out even on Gentiles. For they heard them speaking in tongues and praising God. Then Peter said, surely no one can stand in the way of their being baptized with water. They have received the Holy Spirit just as we have. So he ordered that they be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they asked Peter to stay with them for a few days. The apostles and the believers throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles had also received the word of God. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcised believers criticized him and said, you went into the house of uncircumcised men and ate with them. And then skipping down to verse 18. When they heard this, they had no further objections and praised God saying, so then, even to Gentiles, God has granted repentance that leads to life. This is God's word. Good evening. My name's Phil. I'm the associate minister here. And we're going to be looking through this uh, section in Acts which is a fabulous, fabulous story of God's grace and God's welcome. And it applies to you and me tonight. Let's pray. Lord God, we pray that you would help us to see that in the Lord Jesus Christ, each and every one of us here is welcome. And we pray that we would receive that welcome and we would share it widely. And I pray that tonight, as we look at these words, that by your spirit, you would excite us about this vision. Amen. Look, I hope I don't have to convince you that as we look out, we look out in a very, very divided world. And I think it feels more divided than it used to. Geopolitically, the Ukraine invasion has, has revealed to us that actually there is increasingly a sharp and hostile divide between the so-called Western democratic powers and the rising autocracies, in particular perhaps Russia and China. Uh, politically, within the Western world, things look far more fractious than we like to believe. Uh, I mean, in, uh, in the States, 
It's split along political lines in a bitter division that completely overrides any common sense of national identity. It's not just politics, too. 60 years since the supposed triumph of the civil rights movement, uh, America is still bitterly divided and segregated along racial lines. And those divisions have only got more painful in the last 10 years rather than more healed. We're in no position to be uh, making judgments over here either. In the UK, there are ugly divisions emerging. Again, here, race in the last few years. Uh, suddenly, we've become aware that things aren't as, uh, as perhaps as rosy as some of us in the majority culture would like to have believed. There are some really ugly divisions and painful issues that need uh, to be looked at. There are issues with the police, with immigration, transgender issues, Scottish independence. There are enormous numbers of divisions tearing us apart. And at the most uh, immediate level, Every statistic tells us that, uh, sadly, family breakdown, domestic violence, domestic abuse have been increasing in the last two decades. Now, as humanity, we come together once every four years for the Olympics and feel wonderful about ourselves and how united we are. We're so amazing that even though there are only 196 nations in the world, uh, 206 nations gather for the Olympics. That's how brilliant we are. Um, and I can explain why that is later. But uh, but it's a pretty thin unity for a few weeks. The rest of the time, humanity is divided. And we separate on lines of wealth, of ethnicity, of education, of politics. And even if we're not actively harming one another, the sad truth is that we, we do tend to keep those who are not like us a little bit at arm's length. For all our ingenuity and wealth, we have found that there just aren't easy answers to the divisions that humanity has. And so we wonder, can there actually be hope and healing in a world like ours? Well, the Bible has a, a very radical diagnosis and a very radical solution to this problem. But it does promise there is a solution. The Bible's diagnosis is that actually all these horizontal divisions amongst us as humanity... They are caused by our vertical division, by us trashing our relationship with God. Take the sun out of the solar system and suddenly the planets lose their orbits and they smash into each other and there's chaos and conflict. That's the Bible's diagnosis. The solution is the restoration of that vertical relationship with God through Jesus' death on the cross. As he dealt with sin on the cross, he restored our relationship with God. And in doing so, he released the power that restores our relationships with one another. And so what we're going to see as we look at Acts 10 in particular tonight is that there is an encouragement and there is a challenge for us as a church. And if, uh, if you're not regularly part of this church, then I, I hope you'll listen in and hear whether in this message of Jesus, there is a hope you want to get on board with. But the encouragement and the challenge for us as a church is we have an opportunity to demonstrate to the world that the gospel of Jesus Christ has the power to heal the divisions that are destroying our world. We can live out the hope of the gospel and show the world that there is hope. Uh, to, to live out Peter's declaration, God does not show favoritism, but accepts from every nation the one who fears him. 
Wouldn't that be an amazing thing? If people could look at our church and say, well, can't stand the whole Christian bit of it, but you cannot deny that there is a place of healing and of unity. Look, as we, uh, as we come to Acts 10, we're at the end of the first section of the book of Acts. Jesus promised in Acts 1.8 to the apostles, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And now, finally, at last, the message of Jesus is reaching to the ends of the earth as it goes to the Gentiles, the non-Jewish people. The last category. There are no other categories. From here on, everybody can come into the kingdom of God. Uh, we'll look through it uh, this way. Firstly, uh, we must go to all with the message of Jesus. That's the first thing we'll see. And then secondly, very simply, we must welcome all into the family of Jesus. Uh, we'll, we'll start at um, uh, chapter 10, verse 1. We're, we're, we haven't got time really to deal with 9, 20, 32 to 43, but I'm happy to, to answer any questions about them if you've been reading through Acts um, with us and want to ask afterwards. So 10.1, at Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion in what was known as the Italian Regiment, which might seem a bit obvious if he's a Roman um, soldier, but lots of the, the regiments around would have been um, conscripts from throughout the empire, in particular Syrian, uh, Syrian soldiers were in, um, in this part of the empire. So, but this was an Italian regiment. He and all his family were devout and God-fearing. He gave generously to those in need and prayed to God regularly. One day, at about three in the afternoon, he had a vision. He distinctly saw an angel of God who came to him and said, Cornelius. Cornelius stared at him in fear. What is it, Lord? He asked. The angel answered, your prayers and gifts to the poor have come up as a memorial offering before God. Now send men to Joppa to bring back a man named Simon, who is called Peter. He's staying with Simon the Tanner, whose house is by the sea. Now, I said last week, in Acts, geography is almost always important, and it is definitely important here. Chapter 9, verse 43, if you look back, and then chapter 10, verse 5, both tell us where Peter is staying. He's staying in a place called Joppa. So what? Well, if you know your Bibles, many centuries before, God had sent a prophet from his people to preach the good news to a bunch of pagans in a city called Nineveh, to call them to turn back to him. But the prophet Jonah was so appalled at the thought of these wicked pagans being welcomed by God that he got on a ship to take him in the opposite direction. And guess what the name of the port was where he boarded the ship? Joppa. And so there is an inbuilt tension to the account of Cornelius's men making their way from the Roman capital Caesarea down the coast to find Peter in Joppa. How will this Jewish prophet respond to the call to proclaim God's salvation to another pagan? Well, we've seen that. The action in this section of Acts, um, it advances through a series of conversions. Almost every week, there's been a, a prominent person converted. And in this final account, it's two for the price of one. Because before Cornelius can be converted to Christianity, Peter needs to be converted. Uh, not a religious conversion. He's already a follower of Jesus. But a, a radical change of attitude towards people of other nations. A conversion of his understanding of God's mission and God's people. And his conversion happens in a pretty bizarre way. We'll pick it up at uh, verse 9. 
About noon the following day, as Cornelius' followers were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up to the roof to pray. He became hungry and wanted something to eat. And while the meal was being prepared, he fell into a trance. He saw heaven opened and something like a large sheet being let down to earth by its four corners. It contained all kinds of four-footed animals as well as reptiles and birds. Then a voice told him, get up, Peter, kill and eat. Surely not, Lord, Peter replied. I've never eaten anything impure or unclean. The voice spoke to him a second time. Do not call anything impure God has made clean. This happened three times and immediately the sheep was taken back to heaven. Now, it's perhaps not altogether surprising that uh, a very hungry man waiting for lunch daydreams about food. But this is, this is not just a daydream. This is a vision from Almighty God. Now, Peter is horrified to, read, uh, to hear the command, kill and eat, because as well as uh, fillet steak and Nando's, he sees on the sheet pulled pork burgers and crocodile steak. He thinks, oh, no, 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 no. The Old Testament law says I mustn't eat these things. So how can a vision like this come from God in heaven? Well, the voice presses home the point. Do not call anything impure that God has made clean. The phrase is repeated actually three times in chapters 10 to 11. Don't call impure what God has made clean. Now, what does it all mean, though? Well, Uh, God isn't going to leave it to to Peter's ability to interpret things, so he he explains it pretty quickly. He gives two and two to Peter and tells him what four is. At the very moment that Cornelius' men arrived, verse 17, while Peter was pondering about the meaning of the vision, the men sent by Cornelius found out where Simon's house was and stopped at the gates. They called out, asking if Simon, who was known as Peter, was staying there. While Peter was still thinking about the vision, the spirit said to him, Simon, three men are looking for you. So get up, go downstairs. Don't hesitate to go with them, for I have sent them. Uh, You can tell me off when I meet him in heaven, uh, but perhaps the Lord doesn't think he's the sharpest tool. He's like, look, I mean, this is pretty obvious, Peter, but I'm just going to make sure you don't misunderstand it, all right? Go with these people. The vision, the people. Got it? Go with them. It's wonderful clarity from God. Um, Okay, but pause a second. Why doesn't the vision from heaven have Gentile people? Why doesn't God just say, Peter, I accept all people through Jesus. Forgiveness of sins and eternal life are not just for Jewish people, they're for all the people of the world. So go to a man who's about to arrive and proclaim the gospel to him. Why, why instead do you get this strange vision with the non-kosher animal buffet? I mean, what is going on? It's as if God is being a little bit obscure, isn't it? Actually, we should be very grateful it happens this way because in doing so, God makes clear how we should understand the Old Testament. Uh, it's, it's notable, actually, at the moment, sneering voices in the media are always mocking Christians for picking and choosing which bits of the Old Testament we hold to and which bits we just ignore. Now, in particular, we're told, you can't rely on what the Old Testament says about sex while you have bacon sandwiches, because it's equally clear in, in, in the condemnation of sex outside marriage and bacon. So you can't pick and choose. The truth is that right from the start of Christianity, Jesus himself taught us how to understand the Old Testament. He explained, as we'll see, in the Old Testament, God's people would have followed God's way of life. And that meant living very differently morally from the people around them. 
And that moral distinctiveness was stressed and strengthened by cultural distinctiveness, like food laws, the the not eating pork stuff. It pressed home to them, look, if you're going to follow God, you have to live very differently from the people around you. Their moral distinctiveness was stressed and strengthened through cultural distinctiveness. But those laws were only ever a temporary thing, while God's people were a distinct nation. With the coming of Jesus, God's people are no longer ethnically defined. And so the cultural distinctives, like the food laws, they're obsolete. And Jesus makes that point explicitly in Mark 7. He says these things were just an image, a visual illustration to help you understand about sin. And he says it again here in the vision to Peter. So by giving him this vision... He's saying, look, this is how you should understand those cultural laws of the Old Testament. They were always a picture. By contrast, Jesus actually reaffirms the moral laws of the Old Testament, the Ten Commandments and the teaching about sex and marriage and that stuff. They still apply today. Okay, come back to the passage. So giving Peter this vision, it ensures two things. Well, firstly, the big thing is it ensures that Peter understands God receives and welcomes people from any nation who come to him. He doesn't think the people of the nations are unclean. And secondly, it ensures that when the people from non-Jewish nations start to follow Jesus, the Jewish Christians don't impose all the Old Testament cultural laws on them. And that becomes important later on in Acts. So Peter, um, well, he invites the men and his guests um, to, to rest at the house in verse 33 before he then accompanies them for the return journey to Caesarea. Um, We'll drop down to to verse 24. The following day, he arrived in Caesarea. Cornelius was expecting them and had called together his relatives and close friends. As Peter entered the house, Cornelius met him and fell at his feet in reverence. But Peter made him get up. Stand up, he said. I'm only a man myself. While talking with them, Peter went inside and found a large gathering of people. He said to them, you are well aware it's against our law for a Jew to associate with or visit a Gentile. But God has shown me. I should not call anyone impure or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without raising any objection. May I ask why you sent for me? And then Peter, having heard the answer, he stands up to proclaim the good news of Jesus. Okay, what are the implications for you and me? Culturally, we're a million miles away from this passage. Uh, What are the implications for you and me of this first half? Well, actually, they're very simple. We, as followers of Jesus, must go to everyone with the good news of Jesus' forgiveness and the eternal life he offers. Now, most of us start with people like us. We just do. And that's fine and good. Don't stop sharing the message of Jesus with people who are like you. But don't stop there. Don't limit yourself to that. Now, some of us, uh, well, we find it easier to speak about Jesus than others, but all of us have our blind spots. All of us have got our, our unconscious biases. All of us have got those groups of people, we just, it would just never enter our mind to invite them to a carol service or, or to speak about our faith with them. I heard one uh, speaker ask, what would God put on your blanket? It's a good question. What groups of people would God put on a blanket for you? If he was challenging your prejudices, what would be on your blanket? A string of garlic to represent the French? Perhaps a rugby ball, actually. Uh, Let's not go there. Um, Some pluggers for an Aussie. Um, 
more seriously. Maybe there'd be a bus pass to represent the elderly. Just a Quran representing Muslims. A rainbow flag. See, we, we all have our blind spots. The people we write off because we just, we don't think they'd ever become Christians or worse still, we don't ever find we particularly like talking with people like that. I would encourage us all, when you get home tonight, pray that the Holy Spirit would show you who are those people that in my heart I'm a bit closed to. God is calling all of us to lay aside our prejudices and to share his heart's desire that we take the message of Jesus to everyone. Okay, what practically can we do if we want to do better in that, to lean into God's mission and share his heart for salvation? Well, why, didn't, why not commit to take one concrete step? And I'll give you three practical options. Pick one. Here's three options. One, International Cafe. Um, I'm not sure whether you know about International Cafe. It's one of the least trumpeted, but probably one of the most glorious things that happen here at Christchurch Mayfair. Once a month on the Thursday evening, immediately after the prayer meeting, people from around the world gather here. And they come for English conversation, and there's a short talk from the Bible and opportunity as you eat and have uh, a drink to chat to them, to talk in English. Some come from countries where you simply cannot hear the gospel openly. Now, if you join the team at Cafe, you can be a missionary without having to give up your day job or your home country, without even having to learn a foreign language, because they come here wanting to speak English. It could not get easier than that. And if you'd like to learn more, um, I'm going to um, embarrass them now. Uh, Winnie, Jack, or Peter? In fact, Winnie, Jack, and Peter, quickly stand up. Don't worry. Uh, there we go. Chat to one of them afterwards. Oh, that was the most... I've never seen a... <laughs> Peter, there's no need to sink lower than that. <laughs> it's a great thing. Chat to them. Why not come along one week? Have a look at it. Uh, the second thing, um, there's the, the London City Mission Meal Team. Again, once a month, actually starting for the first time. It's taken a while to get it going, but this Tuesday we're starting. The team uh, will go down to Weber Street, London City Mission's um, homeless centre just near Waterloo, prepare a meal, and then serve it to the homeless guests who come, and then sit amongst them chatting over dinner. Again, the homeless may well be a category of people we never, we never normally share our faith with. Certainly, most of us are highly unlikely to sit down and have a, a conversation over dinner with a homeless person in normal life. If you'd like to come along and have a look at that, uh, you can chat to me about that one. Uh, thirdly, Liz has already mentioned mission partners. Um, if you're not already in the habit of praying regularly for one of our mission partners at church, why not start? Now, one of the exciting things is quite how many of the mission partners only a few years ago were sitting exactly where you are. And then they responded to the call of God, and they've gone. And your prayer life will just get richer, and you'll grow in joy and maturity the more you are engaged and involved in praying for them. Now, you could commit uh, also... Uh, to, to giving perhaps a little on top of what you give to church. You could um, be involved directly on top of that, supporting um, with a financial contribution one of the mission partners. I know that um, uh, both um, the Wakefields um, and Chris are, are looking to, to raise a bit of extra support. So if you, um, if you chat later, I'm sure they'd be delighted to, um, to chat to you. 
that doing so makes you just feel so much more involved in what they're doing. As uh, Liz has said, she, um, as a staff member, is um, the, the sort of liaison for overseeing care of mission partners. She'll be by the board over there afterwards. And I would encourage you, just come, come over and you can have a chat with Liz and she'll perhaps suggest um, a mission partner who you might enjoy learning a bit more about and begin praying for. There you go, three practical options. International Cafe, London City Mission Meal, praying for a mission partner. All of us can perhaps do one of those, can make progress in one area. For God created every human being, and God's new creation will reverberate with the praise of Jesus in every language. And if even the great apostle Peter needed God's nudging and pushing to get on board with this vision, let's not be surprised if if it's going to take some movement from us to get on board with where God wants us to be. But he calls us to go to everyone. We must go to all with the message of Jesus. And secondly, we must welcome all into the family of Jesus. So uh, Cornelius has gathered friends and family, and Peter begins to explain the gospel. Verse 34, then Peter began to speak. I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism, but accepts from every nation the one who fears him and does what is right. You know the message of God sent to the people of Israel, announcing the good news of peace through Jesus Christ, who is Lord of all. You know what has happened throughout the province of Judea, beginning in Galilee, after the baptism that John preached, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and power, and how he went around doing good and healing all who were under the power of the devil, because God was with him. He carries on explaining, uh, God raised Jesus from the dead, verse 40, on the third day and causing him to be seen. He was not seen by all the people, but by witnesses, by us who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. He commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one whom God appointed as judge of the living and the dead. All the prophets testify about him, that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. Peter proclaims Jesus is Lord of all, judge of all, and saviour of all. Only one of those is qualified. He's Lord of all, verse 36, and judge of all, verse 42. He says, look, whether you like it or not, Jesus is your Lord and Jesus is your judge. He's God. He created you. He's God's anointed human king who rose from the dead, triumphant over the grave. He is the judge of all mankind. One of the, the more unhealthy features of modern politics, which I think is starting to come over here a bit, is the, is the phrase um, that I've, I've seen from over in the States a lot of, not my president. Have you seen this? Now, it's people from both sides of the political aisle, so this isn't a partisan point, but people basically say, I don't accept the president I didn't vote for. He's not my president. I don't recognize him. But you know what? He's still in the White House. He's still commander-in-chief of the armed forces. It's still an act of treason to rebel against him. He is your president, whatever your T-shirt says. Jesus is Lord. Jesus is judge. He's the Lord and judge of Christians. He's the Lord and judge of Muslims. He's the Lord and judge of Jews. He's the Lord and judge of atheists. Whoever you are, he is your Lord and judge. So turn to him. He's Lord of all, judge of all. He's saviour, verse 43, of all who believe. We need to trust him to enjoy his salvation. But how wonderful, how glorious that because he died for sinners, 
When we do turn to the Lord and judge, we find he is the savior, the forgiver, the life giver. He hasn't come to bring punishment and subjugation, but forgiveness and life. Now, we may have questions about why God saves Cornelius, because it does sound, doesn't it, as you go through the passage, like God accepts him because he's really, really good, uh, as if he merits eternal life because of his virtuous behavior. Uh, verse 2 stresses he's devout and God-fearing and gives generously to the poor. But it cannot be that Cornelius gets saved because Cornelius is a really, really good guy. Two reasons. Uh, the context and the content. Context, firstly. We've just seen Saul last week in chapter 9, the most thoroughly wicked man imaginable, saved by Jesus. So it's clearly not the case that God, you've got to be good enough to get saved by God. And secondly, the content of what actually happens. Peter doesn't come and say, Cornelius, um, you've lived a great life and now I'm going to baptize you because you are acceptable to God exactly as you are. He comes and says, Cornelius, I'm going to preach about Jesus to you. And it's only if he believes in Jesus, verse 43, that he will be forgiven. The point is, no one is so wicked, Jesus' death can't deal with their sins. But neither is anyone so virtuous that you can swan your way into the presence of God without trusting in Jesus' death to deal with your sins. So the passage, it just doesn't teach we can earn acceptance from God by living a virtuous life. What it teaches is that we can rely on Jesus' promise Seek and you will find. Cornelius' life doesn't show he's earned his way into heaven. It shows he's desperately seeking after God. And all who desperately seek after God will find him. And better still, all who seek after God will find that God has come to seek after them. So he's not saved by his virtuous life. He needs forgiveness through Jesus. But he's not excluded by his Gentile ethnicity. Because God shows no favoritism. And then we get this wonderful, wonderful scene, verse 44. While Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit came on all who heard the message. The circumcised believers who'd come with Peter were astonished. The gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out even on Gentiles, for they heard them speaking in tongues and praising God. Then Peter said, surely no one can stand in the way of their being baptized with water. They've received the Holy Spirit just as we have. As they hear about Jesus, they believe and the Holy Spirit falls on them just as he did on the Jewish believers at Pentecost. And so Peter says, look, how can we deny the sign of baptism to those who have the reality of salvation? Because baptism signifies you're being accepted into the people of God. It's the entryway, the door. And so Peter is saying, these Gentiles who only a day ago, I wouldn't have even gone into their house I now welcome them as full brothers and sisters through Jesus Christ. The barrier that humans had erected and couldn't tear down and didn't want to tear down, Jesus has torn down. And so Peter declares in verse 34, God shows no favoritism. And the point is, skin color, language, accent, age, gender, income brackets, educational levels, social capital, marital status, they all matter, but they have zero spiritual significance. Zero. Now, the stress of this passage 
and of the second half is on the full inclusion of the Gentiles into the church of Jesus Christ. The point being, there will not be a church for the Jewish people and a church for the non-Jewish people. And that would be so much easier. Avoid all sorts of cultural problems. I mean, the large chunks of the New Testament letters by Paul are written to, to tell Jewish and Gentile Christians how to get along with each other because culturally they are so different. But there must be full equality and true inclusion. And actually, I think this is driven home by probably the easiest detail to miss in this whole passage. The surprise. Did you see, did you notice the surprise that I bet almost none of us were surprised by? I certainly didn't spot it when I started studying it. What's the big surprise here if you've been studying Acts with us? Who is it that takes the gospel to the Gentiles? Now, if you were here last week, don't you remember, if you flick back, chapter 9, verse 15, what is it God says? The Lord said to Ananias, go, this man, Saul, is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles. Saul is the apostle to the Gentiles. And the whole second half of the book of Acts is, is Saul, then called Paul, going to the non-Jewish people, the Gentiles, with the message of Jesus. So if it's Saul who is the apostle to the Gentiles, why on earth is it Peter who's preaching to the Gentiles here? Because it was Peter who preached to the Jews at Pentecost when the Spirit was first poured out. And God wants the church in Jerusalem to realize that there is absolute equality between Jew and non-Jew. So it is the same messenger who will preach the same message of Jesus with the same result that forgiveness and the Holy Spirit falls on the people in exactly the same way as it happens at Pentecost. So that they know Jew and Gentile are equal. All people are equal in the church of God. God does not show favoritism. And that is easy to nod along to, but quite hard to live out in practice. In practice, it means we've got to welcome people equally in our church family. But that goes against our natural human instinct, which is to stick with people like me. And it can play out in a host of, of subtle and not so subtle ways when we meet people in church. It's so easy when we first meet people to notice, to clock the accent, the clothes, the skin color, and box them, treat them differently. Some, let's be honest, we ignore Others get a warm welcome when we realize they're new. But we wouldn't dream of looking out for them the next week, inviting them into our home or our friendship groups. Now, look, um, it's always uh, fraught with uh, danger to talk about these things. I hear, I hear that we're pretty good as a church at saying hello to new people on Sundays. But I do just wonder, how easy is it for people who are not part of the majority culture to feel really part of things here? There's always a range of people and a range of experiences. But I wonder whether this isn't somewhere we could live out Jesus' blood-bought unity a bit better. And so tonight, can I just encourage us all to take one practical step of actually getting to know one person who I don't know particularly well. may well have met them before, but of actually getting to know somebody I don't know that well. Take the first step in building a friendship outside your usual network. Because when you do so, your life and our community will be richer for being more diverse.
And all of us can play a role in this. All of us.